Hi everybody, welcome to today's conversation on the Posh Pod. We are in general, and, and when I say we, I mean Bishan and I, we are in general looking at the Posh Act. We, we are exploring some of the construct and guidelines around the Act. And uh, Bishan, the questions I'd like to ask you today really focus on uh, the concept of anonymity within the Act, right? So as an external member, something that I get asked a lot um, why does the complainant have to identify herself? Uh, we know she has to submit her complaint in writing. Any circumstances in which she can stay anonymous? Fair question. And just for the viewers who are joining in for the first time, the background here is Lakshmi sits on a lot of ICs. So Lakshmi has real life experience in dealing with many of these matters. I am a lawyer. So I often advise clients on the technical side of this. So together we hope to address this question for you about uh, whether complaints can be anonymous or not. Yeah, so Lakshmi, on anonymity of complaints, now the language in the law leaves a little bit of ambiguity, right? Because the law says the complaint has to be written. The law says the complaint has to be by an aggrieved woman, mm -hmm. right? Both of those factors can actually still be satisfied and the complaint be anonymous. It can be by an aggrieved woman and be in writing but anonymous, right? So the law doesn't really say it should not be anonymous. But the law on this is quite settled. Uh, cases have addressed this question in uh, multiple decisions, one of them being Manjeet Singh. And the position is quite clear that the complaint cannot be anonymous, right? And uh, there is good reason for why the complaint cannot be anonymous. Uh, it intends to protect uh, not only the respondent, but also the accused. Mm -hmm. Because one, for a respondent to be able to answer a complaint, to address an allegation, he needs to have, and I say he because the law currently protects women, it can also be a woman harassing a woman, right? So, uh, the respondent needs to be able to have enough information to rebut the allegations. Mm -hmm. Where did the harassment happen? Whom did he harass? When did he harass? It's important so that otherwise the respondent is left without having a fair chance to respond. So that's point one. Two, from the side of the victim herself. Now, if you allow anonymous complaints to happen, you open the door for complaints to come from third persons on the, on behalf of a victim. And the victim may not want to be part of that complaint process for whatever reason. You cannot decide for the victim that you now need to be part of a sexual harassment uh, proceeding. Uh, they may have many reasons why they don't want to be. One, because they don't perceive it to be harassment possibly. Two, because they have a, a relationship with the individual. Three, because they may be from a background where it's not looked well upon in their social circles. Whatever that reason is, we are no one to judge what those reasons are. So by allowing anonymous complaints, you open the door uh, for situations where a complaint may go which a woman does not want. So those are some of the reasons for why anonymous complaints aren't allowed. Lakshmi, have you seen this happen? In your, in your experience? Well, you know, I mean, I, I actually want to bring the flip to that where um, primarily international organizations, larger organizations talk also about other policies that they have. Like, for mm. example, they have a bystander policy mm. or they have, uh, you know, an anonymous tips, uh, right, you know, a, a whistleblower, yeah, a hotline, a whistleblower uh, policy. And, and uh, there's a little bit of um, questioning. I'm not going to say concern, but a little bit of questioning in terms of exactly your point. Isn't it better to allow anonymous complaints? Mm. Because then from a workplace culture perspective, um, challenges get floated up. 
when we are talking especially in india when we when we are asking a woman um i want you to tell me exactly who you are what was the problem you faced and hey welcome into this room where there are going to be four people who yeah. are going to be asking you questions about your experience yeah. right so, so so there seems to be kind of um a little bit of um, some kind of questioning around the understanding of that yes uh-huh. the anonymity is um uh, rather i should say the, the, the self identification is important and being on the ic my perspective has been if i don't know the context of the complaint what am i going to investigate yeah right because the whole point of the ic um receiving a complaint is for them to do something about it but if i don't know who's complaining i don't know about whom the complaint is mm. and i'm just given you know in general something happened in our team outing last month I don't know which team which outing who yeah. exactly so I just feel it defeats the purpose of the investigation it is a challenge though okay so we discussed uh, the complaint having to come from an identified person but I'm sure as a member on the IC you're also dealing with even where the complaint comes from an identified person you're dealing with witnesses who say no but I don't want to be named yeah. right uh, for whatever reason yeah. I'm scared or uh, I have my people yeah. may lash out at me based yeah. on the witnesses statements i'm giving etc what is what has been your reaction to that how do you so deal with that so that that has been huge hmm. that has been actually even more right where uh, two two types of witnesses where where uh, or, or two types of situations complainant says such and such person has witnessed this this situation ic says hey let's have a conversation with that person but that person does not want to go on record absolutely hmm. no no is a no hmm. um and and that's uh, something that that you know it's it's more in terms of an educational thing with the witness mm. to say that look it's important for you to tell us whatever it is and and just because you're coming as a witness or you've been named as a witness by the complainant it does not automatically mean that you have a preset story to tell mm. tell us whatever is your uh, take or your perspective or 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 what you've experienced So so that's kind of like a slightly long drawn out process right and then interestingly we we've also had situations where a witness exactly to your point witness says hey i am directly reporting in hmm. into the respondent he's my manager hmm. so while i know that you know i know something about the situation and i'm willing to tell you the ic about hmm. it but i don't want my manager to know that i'm the one who has told you right so, so can you you know like can you accept me coming in and talking to you without telling anybody that it was me yeah right so, so which then leads to a completely different uh, kind of uh, okay. conversation so so the, i mean the answer is that you cannot disregard that evidence mm-hmm. right if the you have a witness who's saying that he or she she saw whatever they saw you can't disregard that evidence but if the witness is not willing to be identified there is naturally going to be a question of how much weight you can give that evidence mm. right now uh, okay let's take one step back what is the obligation under the law with respect to witness anonymity one the law is very clear that to a third party to an outsider the ic cannot disclose the identity of the witness right so i think ic's should also give that comfort to a witness that we have an obligation a legal obligation not to disclose your identity mm-hmm. that's step 
that may not be enough for a witness a witness may still be concerned about their identity being disclosed to parties to the complaint who is a respondent like in your example they are worried that there will be uh, you know lash out from that individual now how do we deal with that now answer is if the witness is not willing to disclose the identity there is naturally naturally an issue with how well the respondent will be able to rebut the testimony of the witness and mm-hmm. there is there are judicial precedents to say that as part of an investigation process which follows the principles of natural justice is the phrase which includes giving the respondent an opportunity to cross examine the witness right so that the respondent is able to say that no the comments of the witness the testimony of the witness is not false because of the questions i've just posed and i've rebutted that mm-hmm. now if that opportunity is not there naturally the full weight cannot be given to the evidence being provided by the witness mm-hmm. but uh evidence can be of various forms and this need not be the one piece of evidence on which the entire uh, matter shifts right if you have other pieces of evidence the evidence provided by the witness could corroborate that right for example if the respondent has been able to question two other witnesses who have not objected to being disclosed and the effects of that cross examination are that the witness was telling the truth and this third person who is saying the same thing uh, has not been cross examined there is a good chance that she or he is also saying the truth mm-hmm. and therefore we can give weight to that to that evidence as well mm-hmm. so it's possible to give weight to it but to a lesser extent and i think that's the law around it hmm that's that's interesting so i'm going to actually share with you a specific uh, situation right mm-hmm. so team outing annual day function whatever mm-hmm. it is uh, but the incident happens in a resort not at the specific workplace we know the act very clearly says when it is part of the official thing then you know uh, any sexual harassment that occurs in a situation like this in in the team outing can be regarded as an extended workplace so so yeah. we've got that uh, kind of settled right um what happened in that particular situation was that because it's a resort uh, this young woman has gone to the you know the the ladies restroom hmm. she says that uh, the respondent whom she has named followed her right and yeah. and then went on to share uh, some details about uh, uh, that that particular uh, experience of hers now we did have a couple of other women who were inside the restroom when the complainant hmm. came in and you know clearly distraught and everything else so so we do have some um i'm 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 using the term eyewitness but you know people who saw that we also had this other person exactly like i said who was um reporting in into the respondent and who said i saw him leave the dance floor mm. you know where all of us were um it was roughly around this particular time and i noticed that you know i i can't say that he was following the complainant but i did notice that the complainant was you know going a, a little ahead and and he was uh, behind her so when the ic when when all of us in the ic were listening to this again you know i mean there is there is this whole uh, this challenge of uh you know from a gut feel perspective we did genuinely believe what this uh, person was saying um and then there was this exactly to your point is it fair for us to accept what mm. this uh, person is saying when they have very very clearly and categorically said don't bring my name into it mm. right so then what what we were discussing is can we share this information with the respondent uh 
by redacting the witness's name, mm. by saying that somebody came to us because telling us in the IC was was an official thing, right? Mm. The witness did come and did depose and did did formally uh, share this information. Leave my name out of it. So is that an option that that we could have maybe explored? You could do it, mm. but I'll tell you why it's not adequate, mm. right? Imagine this person Rama mm. is the one saying that I saw Rahul following. Anamika. Anamika. Mm. Okay. Now, if you had told Rahul that Rama at 7.30 said that she saw you following Anamika, Rahul may have been able to tell Anamika, Rama, but at 7.30 I saw you and uh, Rishabh who was standing at the bar at 7.30 and just ask Rishabh. He'll tell you that she was there. She couldn't have seen this. Right? Mm. Mm. Now, you haven't given Rahul the benefit of Rama's name. And even though Rama may have been at the bar with Rishabh, Rahul is not able to rebut that, uh, right? Therefore, it's not adequate. That's why I said you cannot rely purely on that evidence. But let's say in this situation, apart from Rama, there was also a Rashmi who saw this happen, mm, mm. right? And uh, and Rashmi is willing to come forward, and Rahul is asking her questions and not able not able to de-establish the fact that he followed uh, Anamika, right? In this case, you could possibly also give some weight to the evidence given by Rama. Mm. But Rama's evidence alone, I would not say would uh, stand the test before a court in case it is challenged. Mm. Interesting. So, so what we're saying is that if if this supposedly, well, well, uh, partially anonymous witness, right? Mm. Because not anonymous to the IC, but anonymous to the restaurant. If the, if the information shared by the partially anonymous witness adds weightage adds context adds uh, you know gravitas to something yeah. that is already available with the IC yeah. then then it uh, you can it, use it to further establish uh, the allegation but as opposed to establish it in the first place okay right but it's not to say that a, a witness should be pushed and I want to make that point clearly to IC members as well it's not that you should push witnesses to uh, state their name because they may have genuine reasons for why they fear for their job, they fear for their promotion, fear for their bonus, fear mm. for their safety. Mm. And therefore, they may not want to. So, if they don't want to disclose their name, that's uh, fair enough. But the IC will naturally have to weigh the quality of that evidence mm. accordingly. Mm. And and if and from the IC's perspective, again, uh, th there is that um, internal challenge, right? Um, complainant has come to me and told me the IC what the situation is. Mm. There are three people who are, you know, um, I'm, I, again, I'm using the term in lay English, not, not in legal English, but basically corroborating what the complainant is saying about mm. how the situation played out. But none of them are willing to acknowledge their identity as a witness. What if witness says, or, or even complainant, what if either witness or complainant says that, hey, I see, I'm fine. I will tell you who I am and this is what I saw. Mm. But when the, the cross-examination happens, which is obviously, again, part of the yeah. principles of national justice, I don't want to be in the room with him. Yeah. I don't want to look at him when this is happening. Perfectly fine. Right. Mm. And there is case law on this point as well. On You don't have to force the victim to confront 
her uh, perpetrator mm. right it's that's not a requirement under the law mm. the requirement is to give the respondent an opportunity to cross examine mm. and there are multiple ways of cross examining without them being in the presence of each other mm. sure you may lose a little bit of the benefit of being able to gauge uh, body language and facial expressions and that instantaneous reaction mm. but uh, the, the you have to trade that off against the comfort of the victim uh as well as the safety of the victim and giving the respondent the right to cross examine so you can do this by say through the ic being the mediator where ic receives questions from the respondent poses that to the witness or the complainant and receives the answers passes them along and vice versa right you can also do this through sometimes complainant and the witness may not want to confront the respondent but maybe okay with being on a call Mm. right without being in the same room or without being on a video call they may be fine with being on an audio call with the respondent mm. that's an option that you can consider as well so there are ways in which it can be done virtually physically as well mm. so so from an ic's perspective and now i'm wearing my you know excel member hat mm. right to two challenges to that one is this post office business right i mean mm. you give me a question yeah. this is your answer and stuff yeah. like that it takes a lot of time mm. and it takes time in the sense of actually physically the ic getting together in a room and and you know meeting time yeah. it also takes time in 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 the sense of i send uh, i the ic uh, ask the witness for the for the questions witness says okay i'll send them to you tomorrow and then they come and then i send it yeah. to the respondent you know and it eats into my 90 day deadline as well mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so so what could be a uh, a uh, you know i don't know a, a good practice to manage that timeline is it possible for me the ic to tell the witness send me your written you know whatever response to the to the cross examination questions you have 24 hours to respond is that okay absolutely so there is uh, there is no uh, legally stipulated timelines in which respondents and witnesses or complainants have to provide questions provide answers right mm. it doesn't exist mm. so we have to just in this situation follow the principles of reasonableness literally is all it is and fairness right if you tell the witness that you need to respond in 2 hours mm-hmm. uh, and this is challenged before court eventually the court will probably say that you didn't give the individual enough time to reasonably respond to such complex allegations right but if the comp- if the yes or if the questions being posed are of a yes or no nature which don't require much preparation maybe even 2 hours is fine wow. right okay. so IC has to be reasonable reasonable about what is the nature of questions that you are posing mm-hmm. is it something which requires research uh, looking through your emails preparation or is it something which can be which is very factual and can be answered easily so even 2 hours is fine but if it's more complex you must be reasonable give 2 days 3 days that's broadly okay. you know the process uh, to be followed in these situations okay. i'd say okay all right um fascinating topic and uh you know running out of time but uh, there's one specific question that i'm going to ask you but that's that's really around uh, again the law saying that uh, as a complainant i cannot bring my lawyer into the proceedings mm. right but if we're doing audio call we're doing a digital call let's let's talk a little bit more about that uh you know uh, when uh, we, when we meet again but um uh, good to know good to understand about the difference between anonymity and proximity yeah. that you can stay you know maybe even in two different meeting rooms right i mean as as long as uh, that that separation and that uh, comfort level is there um bishan i can go on forever 
<laughs> and, <laughs> and and uh, you know if we go back and ask organizations so what do you think you know i mean any questions that you have i know that there will be several of them but uh, thank you for your time really before, before we it. sign off though, i yes. do i do want to address one little point which i think uh, companies and employers will want to know about whether they can have a separate policy for anonymous complaints right huh. so while we discussed uh, everything about whether complaints can be anonymous or not and we said you don't have to take it up can you anyway have a process to deal with anonymous complaints mm. right and the answer is yes nothing stops you right and i would recommend that you in fact have those policies nice. because so that it informally you become aware of incidents in your workplace you may follow your other disciplinary processes to deal with them because you will have disciplinary processes to deal with employee misconduct mm-hmm. which can be theft bad behavior bad language insubordination whatever it is for those kind of misconducts you have a separate process follow that process for anonymous complaints as well if you are able to and if the anonymous complaint is quite clear on who the accused is and what they have done go ahead and give them an informal warning not a formal warning because that's a sanction as well go ahead and have a conversation with them say we have come to know about this we don't know if it's true or not but it's come to our notice if it's true i mean consider this to be like an informal warning but it cannot be formal because that's a sanction as well so i mean there are steps that an employer can take and have processes in place to deal with anonymous complaints as opposed to just saying oh it's anonymous we don't you know bother with this at all and just brush it aside and then one week later something happens and you realize oh if i had t- taken that complaint into account and done something about it maybe i could have prevented something in the future so i mean i would urge employers <laughs> to you know not completely disregard anonymous complaints you really hit at the heart of the <laughs> me too movement right i mean um it it's so interesting because what research is telling us what the what the women under the me too um you know uh, tag are telling us is that look if you had dealt with my complaint in a timely manner i wouldn't need to go uh, you know ballistic uh, like this so once again thank you and uh, hey listeners if you've liked what you've heard and you want to hear more you know exactly where to find us come back and uh, look for us we'd love to hear from you like subscribe as always and questions comments we are definitely interested thank you thank you bye bye